Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Thank you so much for all your responses to last week's episode. We had so many emails about the brilliant Candice Braithwaite and we're so glad that you enjoyed her interview as much as we did. There was an interview with Candice in this past Sunday's Observer too, which is great um, and I'll link to that in the show notes just to let you know that we are also sharing all of our resources via our twitter page at the hilo show and i've been saving them under a new highlight on my instagram account um i'll keep adding in resources there we'll keep putting everything in the show notes we'll keep putting it on twitter if we miss something or there's any confusion please tweet us or email us the hilo show at gmail.com and we will be able to help there was a pretty great moment where i saw that the top six audiobooks on Audible were all anti-racism resources and I'm sure a lot of people have found that like with Candice's book when they went to buy a book it was sold out and while it's not great that something's sold out I think it's really heartening to see that engagement overdue but to see that engagement definitely and for anyone who's worried about the cost of books books are expensive An idea that I've seen shared across social media and I've seen groups of people doing is that you can buy one book and share that book with friends um, or establish maybe with colleagues a sharing system or a swapping system. You can download ebooks from your local library and you can buy them secondhand off websites like eBay. I'm a big fan of a secondhand eBay book. Speaking of books, we've been recommended loads more of books, accounts, websites. For children, I was recommended the Instagram accounts, Multicultural Kids Books and Diverse Children's Books, and an indie publisher which focuses on creating diverse and inclusive books for children based in Brixton called Knights of. I just pre-ordered the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, Ibram X. Kendi's new book, anti-racist baby and the little leaders book series is great speaking of ibram x kendi he recorded an episode of unlocking us which is Brene brown's podcast which i really recommend listening to some more books recommended to us by listeners this week superior by angela saini stolen legacy by george james the fire next time by james baldwin your silence will not protect you by audrey lord Benjamin Zephaniah's Poetry and Here For It by R. Eric Thomas. The Instagrammer Novel Allure, who regularly posts about books, she shares little booklets on her Instagram, which are great for a deep dive, like eight black authors you can add to your shelves as well, black book outlets and publishers in the UK, eight Caribbean authors you're probably missing out on, eight Asian Pacific authors you should know about, and lots more in that vein. British Vogue has published some powerful pieces from black writers this week. They're doing really great work, British Vogue. They really are. 
I love their new covers with frontline workers that just arrived for their must be July print issue. And there's three of them, I believe, shot by Jamie Hawksworth. And they feature Nargis Horsford, a train driver on the London Overground, Rachel Miller, a community midwife in East London, and Anissa Omar, a supermarket worker in King's Cross. Grazia also did this probably about six weeks ago now. I loved those covers. I think those images were very powerful and beautiful. And I loved Bernadine Evaristo's article on the importance of inclusive publishing and the power of stories in our understanding of each other. She writes, It's really brought home to me the way in which literature can connect us to each other and foster and express our shared humanity. Our experiences in this country might be specific, but through art we can interrogate universal truths about what it means to be human. This is why it's so important for our arts, culture and society to be inclusive of everyone. It has always been so easy for Brits to feel morally superior in the face of the scale of America's globally amplified racial dramas and to ignore our very own iniquities, which tend to be more perniciously subtle, but which are no less pervasive. I love the way she phrases that as well, perniciously subtle, but no less pervasive. I just think Mm. that absolutely nails it, doesn't it, as a response to people saying, oh, but this is something happening in the US. It's not happening over here. Yeah. She recommends some great non-fiction titles of books to help our understanding of racism. And then she goes on to talk about how important the role of fiction is. She says, and I've never heard this before, that people who read fiction have higher levels of empathy. Isn't that interesting? And it's because they become accustomed to the exercise of putting themselves in another person's shoes. Yeah, I can see that because you have to be able to be narratively transported maybe exactly exactly and she then talks about the lack of novels by black writers being published and why that's obviously such a big problem she says it goes without saying that the industry needs to publish more novels from our communities and at this stage it really shouldn't need diversity campaigns to do so nor should the industry ask us what to do anymore to sit on diversity panels with people of color talking to an audience of people of color none of whom can change the industry from the outside I've been on these panels for some 20 years and I'm not doing any more. The economic, cultural, creative and moral argument for diversity was won a long time ago. It's blindingly obvious that literature's gatekeepers are the ones to change their culture of exclusion. And many of us are fed up of being asked for solutions to systemic racism when we are not the perpetrators of it. The writer Natalie Morris, uh, she writes for Metro newspaper... um... She's written so many great pieces uh, recently. And she tweeted that in 2016, out of 165,000 new books published, only 100 were by writers of colour. Bloody hell. I mean, tiny, tiny, tiny amount. So Natalie's written a lot of brilliant pieces. Check out her timeline um, on Twitter or on the Metro website. But one piece she wrote that I wanted to highlight was one about the importance of reading joyful fiction by black writers, not just non-fiction. Pain is not the only characteristic of the black experience, she writes. And she recommends some books that we've spoken about on the high-low before, like Ordinary People by Diane Evans and Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid and Queenie by Candice Carty-Williams, who came on for an author special, but also a bunch I had not heard of. And I'm really grateful for her introducing me to like How to Love a Jamaican by Alexia Arthurs and Tell Me Your Secret by Dorothy Coomson, for those of you that love a thriller. 
Another piece for Vogue that I wanted to recommend, which was one that I was completely blown away by, was Yomi Adegoke's piece titled We Need to Rethink Our Picks or It Didn't Happen Approach to Activism. The piece deconstructs the very visible outrage, grief, anger and declarations and pledges of allyship that we've seen in the last week or so on social media. And Yomi discusses why that can feel both complicated and uncomfortable. Yomi has kindly recorded an extract of the article for us so we can hear her powerful words read by her. It is a cycle we know too well. The normalised dissemination of black death, videos shared in the misplaced hopes of awakening the masses to a plight that's raged on for centuries. Another name immortalised by a hashtag, added to a never-ending list in the sky. Then, the need for black people to provide our take, to summarise our sorrow yet again in 280 characters. Something that never quite leaves our psyche, a dread that lives in the skin, has settled in the marrow of our bones. In the face of state-sanctioned murder, black people are expected to perform grief, educate white peers and be primed with emotive, eloquent responses to harrowing instances of injustice. I am grateful for those who are able to. I, however, am one of those who simply can't. It has probably been a few years since I have tweeted about these types of atrocities. I feel heavy wading through the footage, the water-baltery of apologists, the guilty posturing of white people seeking personal forgiveness in my DMs for what is a global, generational issue. I feel overwhelmed by the discourse and find the accounts I follow articulate my feelings better than I can. But still, I find myself drafting tweets only to delete them because I hate the idea of contributing to the discourse only to show I'm doing so. I muster a few retweets to links to petitions and resources that are useful. Then I log out to protect my peace. I feel guilty even though I know I'm doing what I can offline. I worry that, despite discourse on racism being central to my work, it looks like I don't care. While it's fine that others feel comfortable processing their anger online, I resent the idea that if it's not processed this way, it isn't there. There comes a time, as the Martin Luther King quote goes, that silence becomes betrayal. This quote in my mind doesn't implicate those who choose to make their noise offline, to do the work away from social media. It pains me to see how quick we are to revoke the benefit of the doubt from those who are in the marginalised groups affected and how quick we are to reward a viral hashtag Black Lives Matter post from those who have never acknowledged these abuses until pressure was applied. The fawning over statements from brands who, despite their attempts to anthropomorphise over the years, are not human, are not black and do not have the emotional burden of dealing with this reality every day. It's not hard for them to find the words from their PR team. For many of us, Hurt, tired, swamped with back-to-back images of black murder. It is. Silence is complicity at times, but for many black people, silence is complicated. We are silent because we are overwhelmed. We are silent because we are protecting our mental health. We are silent because we don't know what to say anymore. We are silent because we are in mourning. We are silent, but only online. Offline, we are doing what we are able to do to change things and will keep doing so once everyone else moves on. The thing about social media activism, which is obviously what Yomi talks about, is that it has been in the main and will continue to be such a positive force for change, but it has also led to the idea that you can know, quote-unquote, the entirety of someone's behaviour by what they have externalised or made visible online, and that's, that's quite a dangerous idea. Yes, I totally agree with that. 
Nezreen Malik wrote in a column titled Fighting the Racism that Killed George Floyd Requires More Than Hashtags. True solidarity, the one that helps in the long term rather than merely buys a sticking plaster for the short term, is in the daily discomfort of taking risks, of challenging a system that subtly but emphatically excludes black people when there is no reward for doing so, and of making way and giving up space where it counts, at the table where power sits and where no one can see you do it. Parting with money and sharing on social media is the easy bit, and thank you, I guess, but the moments in between are the only ones that really matter. Yeah, and I think beyond just this issue, as a wider idea, the work that's often most important and the work that's often most telling of intention is what do you do when no one is there to witness it? How do you behave then? That's the bottom line, really. Like, that's what's really important now. Yeah, what do you do away from Blackout Tuesday? I mean, a lot of people felt conflicted about Blackout Tuesday, didn't they? Some, some saw it as an amazing act of solidarity scrolling through a sea of black squares was to be honest like nothing I've ever seen before on Instagram but some people saw this as the exact time when we shouldn't be muting the conversation and this isn't to say that those who post are wrong and those who don't are right or vice versa you know it's more complicated than that and I have to admit I was someone who posted a black square but when I heard arguments against posting the black square and once I'd listened to the reactions from from lots of black people to the you know hundreds and thousands of black squares that were being posted I did think that I might have made a mistake and I could have shown my solidarity and expressed my desire to help change in a much more considerate way that that could be much more useful and I think a lot of white liberal people felt that in the days after blackout Tuesday I think a lot of us were interrogating how helpful we had been in joining in on that and actually really interrogating why we did it in the first place, who was it actually serving. The writer, Monica Heisey, did an Instagram post the next day that I appreciated. She posted a photo of a black square with a list of bail funds to donate to. And the caption read, new day, new black square. Turns out yesterday's black square sucked. We tried a thing and the resounding feedback was that it was corny and empty and not helping. So we go again. Nothing wrong with trying, but you do have to reevaluate your method if your gesture of solidarity doesn't land, let's say. And I think that that's a reminder to us as white people that if we want to be now in this lifelong process of unlearning racism and becoming informed and helping to make change, we will get it wrong and we have to just become gracious and and humble and chill about that. Our desire for change has to now be greater than our desire to preserve our egos, basically. I think that's particularly something to consider in regards to allyship. I was rereading the chapter in Mickey Kendall's book, Hood Feminism, this week on allyship, and I realised that even in the last week, despite my quote-unquote best intentions, I had got stuff wrong. And fear of getting things wrong is not an excuse not to do it, but I do think possibly too many of us leaned on that excuse another thing there's been a lot of conversation about this week is protest i really recommend a youtube video of a conversation between rupaul's drag race stars bob and peppermint titled why you should say black lives matter riots are the direct effect of people not feeling heard protesting is the peaceful way to do that and when protesting doesn't work because let me tell you the protests let's talk about this because we didn't jump 
to people breaking through Target windows. The first day, it was people peacefully marching in the street. And then what were the images that we saw? Police driving by or on foot, hosing the people down with hoses and tear gas. This was people walking and saying, we want change. And if the response to that is, if, what is you're going to uh, attack people and expect them not to fight back when they know that they are literally fighting for their lives. I think what many of us are learning is that naive to conflict and protest, as many of us are, we perhaps expect things to be polished and kind of neatly executed. And that's never been what big change looks like. I always remember what what I read somewhere, perhaps I read it in Helen Lewis's new book, Difficult Women, um, because I've learned a lot in that book about, a lot from that book about protest, but that if the suffragettes were around now, they'd be considered terrorists. And I think that's a really interesting kind of way of remembering, or as we're constantly reminded, Rosa Parks was not like a sweet, docile little lady refusing to move from her bus seat. Real change is going to be messy and confronting. And as many articles have pointed out this week, it always involves the toppling of monuments, whether that's the monument of Stalin in Hungary in 1956 or that of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad in 2003. Like the idea of history being preserved in a statue is wrong. Like history is made and progress is made when those Statues are torn down often. A student called Joseph Gelman put it superbly, I thought, vis-a-vis the tearing down of the statue of the slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol at the weekend. He wrote, For a black person in Bristol to have walked past the statue of a slave trader every day would be like me, a Jew, having to walk past the statue of Heinrich Himmler every day. And I think just when you put it like that, again, it's just like... (laughs) It's incontestable. Yeah. Um... Another one that made me laugh out loud. Uh, annoying, I can't find the original source because people have memed it as their own line. Uh, but if you, if anyone knows, please do let me know. But in response to someone saying that the statue of Colston was to commemorate his philanthropic work, not his work as a slave trader, uh, the response was, hey, is it OK if I put a statue of Jimmy Savile in your garden? Obviously for his charity work, not his paedophilia. <laughs> Just like, again, when you put it like that. Sadiq Khan actually announced today, which is Tuesday, that all slave trader statues in the City of London should be removed. Well, speaking of those statues, there are so many important petitions that are being set up online day by day. Please do keep sending any to us that you think we may have missed because we will always want to flag them. And this week we want to flag a petition to have a statue of Paul Stevenson erected in Bristol to replace the statue of Edward Colston. Stevenson was a civil rights campaigner who led the 1963 Bristol bus boycott, which started because the Bristol Omnibus Company refused to employ black or Asian bus drivers. The boycott influenced the creation of the Race Relations Act and... I can't think of a better figure to honour with a public statue. So please do sign that petition. They're well on their way to hitting their target of signatures. We're also asking our listeners to sign a petition to improve mortality rates and health care for black women in the UK. 
It's a call for more research to be done into why black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth, which is something Panda spoke to Candice about in last week's episode. And the petition calls to establish recommendations to improve healthcare for black women as urgent action is needed to address this disparity. When the petition reaches 100,000 signatures, it will be considered for debate in Parliament. And at the time of recording, I think it's halfway there. So please do sign that. And also with that petition, your signature isn't included until you follow an email link after you sign it. So remember to click onto that link after you sign. We also wanted to urge our listeners who are able to, to consider donating to a charity called Black Minds Matter, which supports black people in need of therapy. The fundraiser states... We understand more than ever the effects of racial discrimination across this country. For many black people, the cases of violence against individuals such as George Floyd in the USA and the many historic incidents in the UK are deeply triggering. Treating mental health must be a priority in the fight for equality and welfare of black people in the UK. We also understand that the NHS is currently in crisis and therapy is not always readily available. Our aim is to link as many black individuals and families in the UK with certified professional black practitioners for sessions as soon as possible. Now, I've talked about the fact that I have been in therapy and therapy has been vital over the years in supporting mental well-being. And I am incredibly privileged to have been able to receive it. It shouldn't be a luxury, but sadly, when it's private with its price tag and because of the long NHS waiting list, it is. That is completely and utterly unfair. So please do consider donating so that equal access to this kind of help can become more available. We also received a letter letting us know about a mentorship scheme that isn't exclusive to London that we thought would be useful. Reach Out is a mentoring charity supporting young people aged 9 to 16 from disadvantaged communities across London, Manchester, Liverpool and Oldham. Around 80% of the young people Reach Out support are from British and minority ethnic backgrounds and are referred to Reach Out for mentoring due to low confidence, low academic attainment or because they are in need of a positive role model. With the help of a mentor, they are encouraged to develop their character strengths, increase their confidence and improve their academic attainment. And you can find that out, Reach Out UK. K.org. All of that will be in the show notes. If there's something you can't find, please do tweet us or email us and we'll be able to help. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Babylon Storen's new Morvedre Rosé. With summer around the corner and green spaces opening up, it is definitely seasonally appropriate to crack open the rosé. Be the first to taste the new 2020 vintage of Babylon Storen's Mourvedre Rosé with hints of raspberry and rose petals, an elegant dry wine from their beautiful gardens in the Cape Winelands of South Africa. If you buy three or more bottles of 2020 Babylon Storen Mourvedre Rosé, you get a 500ml tin of their extra virgin olive oil as a gift. Go to thenewt.co.uk forward slash the Hilo. Thank you to Babylon Storen's Mourvedre Rosé.
I wanted to mention three bits of heartening news, Panda. One is pressing, one is inspiring, and one is trivial. Oh, sock it to me. The first is that girls in New Zealand high schools will no longer have to pay for sanitary products after the government announced it would foot the bill in an attempt to stamp out widespread period poverty. Isn't that brilliant? That is. I love that. Thank you. Prime Minister St Jacinda Ardern said sanitary supplies for a monthly period were not a luxury but a necessity and too many girls were skipping school because they weren't able to afford pads and tampons. My week is always improved by news of Jacinda Ardern. What's your next titbit? The second is a story that I saw on the BBC, which is a short video that I implore everyone to watch that I found so inspiring. That is a story about a Gurdwara in Slough, which is one of the largest Sikh temples in the UK, uh, and how it's turned itself into a 24-7 emergency food operation during lockdown. Thousands of volunteers have helped to get this food sent out to vulnerable people who can't leave their homes. Um, it's food which is either donated or purchased and the local council have helped with transport. And then volunteers also prepare hot meals at the Gurdwara and daily 6,000 meals are sent to homeless charities and delivered to eight different NHS hospitals. Oh, that's a very heartwarming piece of news. And my final piece of news, I don't think you're going to believe this, is that the model and wife of Rod Stewart, Penny Lancaster, is to be a special constable once lockdown restrictions are lifted in London. She has revealed that she's been accepted to join the City of London Police once she's completed her initial training. I did a reality show called Famous and Fighting Crime, where I was involved with the police, she said. It was terrifying, but I never felt more comfortable in a position, and I felt like this was where I was supposed to be. To qualify, I had to sit exams and go for an interview with two officers, and then I did a fitness test, and I had to do a massive vetting form going through all my personal details. Now I'm waiting for the training to begin so that I can actually serve the community. Isn't that extraordinary? I think that's so wonderful, and I implore you not to take advantage of Penny's absence from the family home and decide to <laughs> just drop a little deliveroo into Rod's shirt. Stay away, Dolly. She's doing altruistic things. She's not freeing up the Stuart household for you. <laughs> I have taken heed. I have, in turn, two joyous things for you. Can you see a little picture on your screen? I can. They are shoes with the most extraordinarily long... They look like flippers. Skis. <laughs> like ski yeah. shoes. So they're made by a Romanian cobbler who's making shoes in a size 75 <laughs> in an attempt to get people to follow social distancing rules. I think they're oh, quite brilliant. they're quite a um, bargain. They're 90 pounds, which is obviously not cheap, but if you look at how much shoe you're getting, <laughs> you're getting like five pairs of shoe of shoe just five shoe in one <laughs> anyway so i find that quite cheering um that said i do wonder how booming that market has been because they are really strange and another lovely bit of news is that paul mezcal aka connell from normal people has um auctioned off his very famous chain that has numerous Instagram accounts named after it. He auctioned it off um, to a mental health for a mental health charity called Pieta House, and he raised sixty two thousand pounds for a chain. <laughs> it is amazing. One of my dearest friends, who God love her, isn't massively engaged in the zeitgeist, and that's one of her most charming traits. Asked on our WhatsApp group the other day if Paul Mezcal was an MP. Because she'd seen, 
She'd seen his face so much in the news, she assumed that he was a cabinet minister. <laughs> I wish he was an MP. Yeah, I think we all do. I think um, he's got a, a very good head on his shoulders from what I've from what I've read of him in interviews. He'd be uh, they'd be lucky to have him. Uh, speaking of lucky to have them, that was a clunky segue. Celebrity <laughs> goggle box has arrived, Dolly. Oh, I love Celebrity Gogglebox. Who have they included in this one? Well, they're in trouble again for not social distancing. <laughs> because, again, they're often putting two people on a sofa who don't live together. So How do they keep... This is like the first rule of Gogglebox during lockdown. How do they keep fucking it? Other people on the show. Denise Van Alton and her partner, Eddie. YouTube uh-huh. stars, KSI and SX. Nick Grimshaw and his niece, Liv. Uh... I really like their um, coupling. Stacey Solomon and Joe Swash, who are wonderful. Zoe Ball and her son, Woody. Harry Redknapp and his wife, Sandra. Laura Whitmore and Ian Sterling, although they weren't in the first one. Nicola Adams and her partner, Ella. Eamon Holmes and Ruth Langsford. Uh, Martin and Roman Kemp. And Amelia Fox and her mother, Joanna David. Uh, Joanna has unsurprisingly replaced Lawrence Fox, who was in the last series, but... Probably wouldn't be that welcome in Gogglebox right now. My hero, I've only watched one episode, there's only one out so far, but my hero is Amelia Fox's mother. So I've met Joanna David. I met her around Christmas time last year. And I think she might be the most enchanting woman I've ever met. One of the first things she said to me was, my darling, how many lovers do you have currently? (laughs) I adored. <laughs> it's. Do you think that's how every conversation started in the seventies? That's us romanticising seventies, isn't it? I think so. <laughs> I also very much enjoy the banter. God, I hate that word, but it is banter between Roman Kemp and his father Martin Kemp. Uh, Roman's a radio presenter and DJ, and that does not surprise me because he's very funny. He does this whole bit about when Take That come back together, you know, remotely to record like. A song. Uh, he talks about how jarring he finds it when people shift the emphasis on the name so that it's take that, not take that. Yes, that's a very boomer thing to do. <laughs> and Martin Kemp's like, there's no difference. And he's like, how can you not hear the difference? It's everything. <laughs> God, I love Gogglebox. I've actually wanted to talk about Gogglebox on the show since we've gone into lockdown because I have just found it so entertaining and comforting me too and maybe it's because it's a show that is designed to be made in lockdown so there's been zero other than commenting on the kind of topical shows that they're watching the quality in the heart of the program has remained exactly the same because it is just people sitting at home and conversing with the person they live with and that's all we've been allowed to do the last few months I never used to watch it and I've got no idea why. I quite want to set aside a sort of year of my life and just start at the very beginning. Because it, it did start yeah. quite a long time ago, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Stefan Dom. Remember that? Stefan Dom. Yeah. God, Heroes. it really has been going a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I've really, really enjoyed Gogglebox during lockdown. It's something I really look forward to. Speaking of things I look forward to, I want to talk about Nick Cave's Red Hand Files, which I know I've spoken about before, but 
I really cannot stress how much this newsletter that the musician Nick Cave sends out, I cannot stress how much it is my favourite corner of the internet and such a unique one. He's just such a wonderful writer. You sent me something recently that he'd written about uh, the loss of his son, which is something that he Mm. writes quite a lot about. And I sent that on to my dear friend who lost her boy um, and uh, she found it really beautiful as well I, mm. I just think he does so much for people who are in the depths of grief he's very generous about what must be a really painful and traumatic thing to revisit yeah I'm not I don't know if I'm proud of this but this is testament to how much I love and trust his words of advice and wisdom I can't believe I'm admitting this when I found myself in a difficult personal situation a few months ago and I was not very happy uh, and I wasn't sleeping I <laughs> I wrote a letter to the red hand files I, I wrote a question to Nick Cave <laughs> I hope you wrote it by hand and included some love hearts and some glitter <laughs> can you believe that that's mad isn't it that I did that I it was just lovely. I remember waking up and feeling so alone and really wanting some guidance on something and I was like there's only really one person who I want to hear from right now and it's Nick Cave he hasn't answered it but no one could ever accuse you of setting your heights high when it comes to friends friends to have a you know a grumble and a cry with I only want to talk to Nick Cave no go away India go away Farley I only want to talk to Nick Cave but I'm not surprised Uh, and I think it's lovely that you wrote to him so his his readers, you can you sign up for it and then you read these interactions that he has with his readers. I can't imagine how many questions he must get. He must get thousands and thousands and thousands. People pose questions to him. Sometimes they're just uh, questions about his music and about his life. Uh, sometimes they're philosophical questions. Sometimes they're personal, emotional dilemmas. And the one that I loved recently was about identity. So he answered two questions with one answer. The first question was from a woman called Eleonora in Belgium who was asking about how we make our inner selves coherent. And then the second question was from Max in Germany, who said, what do you personally look for in an artist? His response, dear Eleonora and Max, I think that for some of us, it is almost impossible to have a cohesive identity, or rather there are some whose inconsistent and conflicted sense of self is their identity. There are those who have an identity that is contrary and evolving and forever at war with itself. It is perpetually in the process of challenging its own best ideas. Once an idea of self, a stance, a point of view, an identity is settled upon, this inner subversive begins the business of dismantling it. Yet this resistance to a fixed identity could be our greatest strength. Perhaps I inherited this tendency from my father, who had, to say the least, a perverse and contrary view of the world. Or maybe it's because I was born between star signs, or it could just be the old boomer in me that continues to have a nostalgic fondness for disruption and chaos, but I have forever felt a horror of being boxed in by an identity and an inflexible opinion. For this allegiance to a single persona can be the very death of creativity. Maybe, Eleonora, this is some advantage in not having those bits fit together. This lack of cohesion prevents us from being enslaved by absolutes. What is true and what is not true? What is the right way to be and what is the wrong way to be? And affords us the ability to embrace contradictory ideas at the same time. 
For an artist, particularly a songwriter, this ability to be open to influence, to discard persona, gives us the freedom to express ourselves in contrasting ways. When I think about the artists who've had the greatest impact on me, this fluctuating and disordered identity and necessity to reinvent themselves is common to most of them. I think this is what I look for in an artist, the ability to change and to grow and to confound. Love, Nick. Not even just in an artist, I don't think. Like Mm. most psychotherapists uh, agree that as, you know, uncomfortable as it is, we are many selves that are Mm. constantly in flux and the sort of more we try and resist that and think of ourselves as a fixed self Mm. which is how other people like to think of us because you know it's easier to like categorize people if you think of them as one thing Uh, the more we resist that the more it kind of turns inward to us it is very interesting and I think what he says about the fact that not only are we fragmented into different selves that those different selves can be in dispute with each other and actually in keying in and listening to those tensions between ourselves isn't an act of hypocrisy it's an act of evolving and being Mm. whole it's also like a necessary discomfort isn't it um yeah and it's the kind of building resilience in in managing to sort of jostle your identities and your parts it's it's building a resilience it's like understanding that we're not we're not made whole and perfect we're constantly kind of breaking up and Mm. realigning and I think that's really scary to someone who's a control freak definitely it's something I find really scary but I'm also starting to find it a bit more freeing oh gorgeous writing thank you Nick Cave speaking of Nick Cave uh, I loved the gentle funny and moving film adapted from the graphic novel by Joff Winterhart, a film by Simon Bird and Lisa Owens uh, called Days of Bagnold Summer, which stars Nick Cave's son, Earl Cave, um, and Monica Dolan and Rob Brydon, who is on his best, most unctuous, turtle-necky form, and um, <laughs> Tams and Greg. And it's about a mother and her 15-year-old son who live in a sort of nondescript uh British suburb it's filmed in Bromley but you're kind of meant to feel like it could be anywhere and it's the story of their summer when 15 year old metalhead Daniel who is played with just melancholy heavy lidded lank haired brilliance by Earl Mm. Cave Um, he has his six week trip to Florida to see his father and to meet his new half sibling cancelled and so he has to spend it resentfully with his mother a law-abiding uh, but very well-meaning librarian named Sue. I adored this film as well, and there was so much about it that I found resonant and truthful and hilarious and tender. But I have to say, for anyone who grew up in the suburbs, this is essential viewing. It's such an evocative story and account and portrait of adolescent boredom spent in the suburbs it really brought back a lot of memories watching it it's full of glorious moments about the intimacy and devastation of parenthood as well you know daniel can be as as teenagers often can terribly cruel to his mother and the film doesn't shy away from that but he's also not he's not a nasty boy like you see the sort Mm. of warmth and confusion in him as well and I adore the moments where Sue begins dating again 
and she says to Daniel, and I promise this isn't a spoiler, it's in the trailer. Anyway, she says to Daniel, we can talk about it if it makes you uncomfortable. And he goes, talking about it makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is a bit of a heartbreaker, that film, because if you're someone who, you know, has young children or, or desires to have a family, this really is capturing the <laughs> the most difficult period of of rearing children for most people which is i think particularly with with parents and children of the opposite sex which is a teenage boy and a well-meaning mother and a, a mother who's desperate to connect to him and a son who just because of the evolution process just finds his mum the most not only boring but like hideous uninteresting <laughs> awful human alive and it's it's just and she's so patient with him and it's something I've spoken to my mother about before and she was like yeah it's just a really painful period of being a parent where just like they would prefer to do absolutely anything other than be in a room with you basically it's definitely a reminder to parents with young children that teething is nothing on teenagehood yeah yeah I can imagine I also love that well, it has that requisite, sweet, you know, slightly wistful score by Bell and Sebastian. It also has blasts of ear-shattering metal music, which I am 100% not a fan of as a musical genre, but does give it an authenticity and also sets it nicely apart from other sort of gentle indie films, I think. Where did you watch it? You can rent it on quite a few streaming platforms. I watched it on Skype. You can also watch it on... Virgin, uh, Apple, uh, iTunes, Curzon Cinema as well. Um, So that is uh, a great alternative to the cinema right now Um, because I would have gone and seen that at the cinema, I think, if the cinemas were open. Uh, Another thing I really recommend watching is Douglas by Hannah Gadsby on Netflix. Oh, I've been meaning to watch that. For anyone unfamiliar with Hannah Gadsby, it's the follow-up to Nanette, the live comedy performance about homophobia and sexual violence uh, that went unexpectedly, at least unexpected to Gadsby, not to those who watched it, huge in 2018. If you haven't seen Nanette yet, I really recommend it. There's an extremely powerful bit. You understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins. It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. This is a lighter affair, although it still covers serious issues like Gadsby's autism and how her diagnosis was a relief. It's something she has said makes it impossible for her to maintain romantic relationships. It's sort of hard to summarise what Douglas is about as it includes everything from canine genitalia to ignorance to identity and it contains, she warns, one joke about Louis C.K. One of my favourite bits is near the beginning of the show where she says <laughs> where she says that those who have come to the show because they like Nanette are fucked up. She's like, what are you what are you looking for? Like more trauma porn? And then she asks people who have never seen Nanette to put up their hand. And when they do, she says, got even less of a fucking clue why you're here. Like, good on you. But I, she's like, what on earth did you think you're coming to see? She did a great 
episode of Fresh Air recently with Terry Gross and uh, strikes that balance, as he said, of being it's very serious and furious and sad and moving in parts and also very, very funny and uh, lighthearted in other parts. She talks about she talks about the late diagnosis of autism. As a side note, something I've always found very interesting that I learned after I read Viv Albertine's book To Throw Away Unopened is that autism often is underdiagnosed in women. And the theory is that women are so conditioned to socially accommodate in a way that men aren't from such a young age that it can conceal being on the autism spectrum. So she talks about that late diagnosis. She also talks about why she isn't making her body a punchline anymore and why she thinks it's important for her not to use her body as a tool for comedy. And I found that very interesting and enlightening because I think that's something I've been quite ignorant about in the past, if I'm honest. I think that I've used my body or my various struggles with uh, body image and food as a way of exploring sort of dark humour. And I think it's really important to look at what good that actually does and... Uh, who you're really laughing at when you make that joke, even if you think you're making it at the expense of yourself. It's a very, very good interview. That also taps into what she says about uh, it's not humility, it's humiliation. Yeah, exactly. That's very well put. And while I'm on the subject of podcasts, I have a bunch to recommend from the last couple of weeks. Yes, I love your podcast updates. The C Word, which is a luminary series by historian Alyssa Bennett and Lena Dunham, have released their latest episode on the presenter and writer Paula Yates. The episode unpicks her treatment in the British tabloid press and the very public slut shaming that she endured when she left her husband Bob Geldof for the musician Michael Hutchins. I've always been interested in Paula Yates' story and I just found this episode fascinating. I also have to talk about Miriam Margulies on Grounded with Louis Theroux. It is hilarious, characteristically outrageous. There's lots of interesting conversation about sex and sexuality, about her politics. She's very candid when talking about her Jewishness, particularly in relation to being a Labour supporter. Um, And she also talks about what it's like to live in a different country to your long-term partner, which I found very interesting. And she put Louis through in his place a lot, which I loved. She also thought that he asked her too much about sex at the beginning, which I'll play here. And warning to listeners, there is a strong language alert. So if you're in a kitchen with kids, just skip ahead a minute. We started a bit, well, I started a bit trivial. My mind was in the gutter, which is a place... It was. I was disappointed in you for that. I could see that. I am an old lady. I am, you know, a year and a half off 80. And I don't want to be thinking about my cunt all the time. I want to think higher thoughts. And you dragged me down. I did. I plead guilty and I apologise. I also have been listening to Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner. It's a podcast that I love and I don't think I've talked about on the show before. It's hosted by the food writer Jay Rayner. He takes a guest out to a restaurant for lunch and you listen to them choose the food, have a long meal together and he talks to them about everything from their career to their family to their love of food and cooking. The past episodes that I have loved include 
Kathy Burke, Stanley Tucci, Leanne Le Havis, Russell T. Davis, Guy Garvey, Nadia Hussein, and Jamie Cullum. This podcast is so charming and entertaining, um, and I've always liked it, but I've loved it during lockdown because it's a nice reminder of, of pre-lockdown life and dining out with people that you love. For a lot of people, that is the great treat and luxury in life, and that is the great luxury that they're missing. Um, so it's nice to be reminded of it. He's actually doing some later episodes now, which are lockdown episodes where he sends uh, deliveries to his guests. But it's the episode where, where you can hear, you know, the, the buzz of a restaurant and the and the clattering of, of cutlery and the uncorking of wine that I'm really enjoying during this time of isolation. I loved a recent episode of Desert Island Discs, which uh, bucked the traditional format and instead was about stories uh, that listeners have shared about songs and music that have become special to them for lots of different reasons during lockdown. It's very moving. There's a wonderful story about a nurse uh, who took her guitar into work on the suggestion of her boss and who led a kind of group singing of the song Amazing Grace and there's a recording of the nurses singing it together, which is lovely. And there's also a story about a man who was suffering from COVID and had to be put in a coma. And before the coma was induced, he thought that that he might not see his family again. So he gave a piece of music to his family and said, uh, please listen to this while I'm in hospital. And he says all his family met distanced uh, outside and they just played it while they knew this coma was being induced. It's so emotional, the episode, with lots of stories that are uplifting as well as moving. And it's just a sort of important moment of history, I think, of collecting all these different experiences during this very specific time of history. I can't really explain what happened, but people really connected to it and they sung it absolutely beautifully. We had some harmonies going. I mean, we are... We're not a group of singers. I don't know, something very powerful happened and um, people really, really did connect to it. It's a song about healing as well and I just know that afterwards, after we kind of sang the song and it was finished, everyone was looking at each other as if to say, did we just do that? I also loved listening to Professor Dame Elizabeth Anionwu's episode of Desert Island Discs. She is a retired nurse, campaigner and professor of nursing at the University of West London. She spent 40 years working in healthcare and has been named one of the most influential nurses in the history of the NHS. The achievement that she's best known for is her pioneering work in understanding and treating sickle cell disease. It's such an interesting interview. She speaks about the disparity in safety for both nurses and patients of colour. She talks about how when black patients would be admitted for sickle cell in horrendous physical pain, it was often assumed by healthcare professionals that they were on drugs. Um, And she also speaks candidly about her own upbringing as a mixed race child born out of wedlock in the 1940s. 
I wanted to play a clip which couldn't be more timely for the week that we find ourselves in about how she campaigned to have a statue of Mary Seacole erected outside St Thomas's Hospital, which is the first statue in the UK to represent a named black woman. And I hadn't seen before, but next time I'm in that part of town, I endeavour to go visit Mary Seacole. It took 12 and a half long, long years to raise the necessary money. Mary Seacole is part of the history of Britain. She was Jamaican-Scottish heritage. And the fact that she's brown-skinned should just not be important, but it is important. And the joy of having this wonderful, wonderful monument in the grounds of St Thomas's Hospital, overlooking the Houses of Parliament. And Mary is striding forth... And, you know, it's as though she's keeping an eye on those politicians. You know, it's wonderful from whatever background you are. But can you imagine how important it is for groups of individuals who don't always feel accepted? You know, I took my granddaughter down. She was there at the unveiling. But a few months later, she was staying with me and took her round London Eye. And I said, is there anything else you want to see? Can we go and see Mary again? Oh, the joy in my heart. That's what it is about. My granddaughter can see a statue of a woman that looks like her in terms of skin colour. It's just wonderful. Brilliant podcast recommendations. Thank you very much, resident podcast. I also had a podcast I wanted to recommend. Uh, Rongan Chatterjee's podcast, Feel Better, Live More. I'd been looking for a wellness podcast that was sort of straight talking rather than simpering, rooted in science rather than, I don't know, tinkling waterfalls. And this podcast by the physician and broadcaster Rongan Chatterjee is really brilliant. I particularly recommend the episode with Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, a firefighter and psychologist who was homeless as a teenager. Her stories about going to school at age 16... The morning after a man uh, urinated on her as she slept on the street will crack your heart in two. And her resilience, generosity and sense of humour are all the more impressive in light of what she went through in her younger life. She's incredibly inspiring. She talks about what she learned as a firefighter, but also the misogyny that was rife within the force, which is part of the conversation, uh, along with racism, that we are starting to have and should be having a lot more about state-funded bodies. Sabrina was told time and time again that she wouldn't be promoted because she doesn't have a dick. But she's also brilliant on the small stuff. She applies her experience of anxiety to not just the huge issues that she has experienced, but the micro-issues that the privileged among us will be experiencing it's a brilliantly thoughtful uplifting and educational episode to listen to right now but I also recommend the podcast in general I'm currently working my way through it and it's the it's the well-being podcast that I've been looking for I also wanted to recommend the most moving sprawling piece uh, by Rebecca Traster for New York magazine that I read this week called The Resilience of Marja Griesbach. It's about the life of 92-year-old Holocaust survivor Marja. Her recall is amazing. It's so incredibly specific in memory and it's pacey without feeling like it scrimps on any personal detail. 
And I think something really wonderful and amazing is that she is now best friends with a man who, having also grown up in the same area of Germany as her, used to be in the Hitler Youth. And that they overcame that part of his personal history in order to embrace who he is now and to build a friendship. It's a wonderful long read, particularly for now. It reminds us again of the atrocity that was the Holocaust and it imbues with hope. It's a story about the capacity to heal and to triumph and for relationships to forge across um, completely opposing identities and life experience. Uh, You know, something that caused Marja such trauma um, is in one of her closest friends' past. Uh, This bit I found particularly humbling. I think every life is like a novel, Marja told me at one point. Among the things that have surprised her about her own narrative arc, she said is how I've had to get reconciled that I am best friends with a German, one who was an ardent little Hitler Jugend boy. She understands, she said. He was two and a half years old when Hitler came to power and his parents happened to be pro-Hitler. He desperately wanted to be a soldier and he wasn't quite old enough to serve and was envious of those who did. But, she said, after the war he learned differently. He travelled all over with his wife and they got other ideas and read a lot of books and realised how blind and one-sided it was what he'd been taught as a child. No time again for Ask the Hilo this week, but I did just want to mention that we've got so many responses to a letter we got a few weeks ago from a woman leaving school with no friends. I wanted to read a few here as they're really heartening and hopefully might help our listener and other listeners too. There will be people who come in and out of your life, but whoever you are around will value your presence and you will play some role in their life. Their life wouldn't be the same if you weren't there, no matter how small a contribution you make. Another said, I had a very similar experience myself to your listener who left school without any friends. I can't lie, it was devastating. When I left my hometown for uni at 19, all I wanted was to finally find my crowd and I felt a massive failure for leaving school friendless. You can't help but feel unsociable, unlikable and defeated. Even though I then made friends at university, over the Christmas holidays every year, I would scroll through photos on Facebook of people from school hanging out or uni friends returning home to their own school friends and felt like I must have been socially incompetent to have ended up sitting at home lonely. I'm now 29 and I've made several deep and freeing friendships in my 20s, including in my hometown, and this is my advice to the listener. Not forming lasting bonds in school says nothing about your likability or social competence. More likely, it probably just means in the time you spent in school, you happened not to ever come across a kindred spirit. For me, the fact that my home life differed substantially from that of my peers impacted my ability to connect with others as we lacked in shared experience. Thank you so much for writing in with those. We're so grateful to everyone who shares their story with us. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch from thehiloshop.com with 100% of proceeds going to charity, 50% going to show racism the red card, 50% going to women's aid. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.